Hi, my name is Jean Bull. I'm a very grateful member of Al-Anon. Hi, Jean. I, first of all, before I get nervous and forget, I want to thank the committee for inviting us and thanks for our great dinner that we had at Shea Allen. And I'm not saying a darn word about not having our clothes last night. <laughs> um, we shared up in Seattle one time and they had a crowd and they had it piped into another room. And so I said, you know, for anybody who can't see me, I'm very tall, very thin, and I have this fluffy black hair. People always mistake me for Cher. And I everybody that was in the room laughed, you know. But that's how I think of myself. Every time I look in the mirror and see this short, dumpy person, I can't believe it. <laughs> I used to say for years that, you know, before I had a little self-worth. Now I know it's not for those reasons. I used to say that Jack only liked me because I could type and I was shorter than him. <laughs> uh, we, we've had a, you know, it, it's, we've been really lucky because we've been able to share a lot in the program. Not, as our daughter Christy said, not because we're good, but just because we're there. Uh, there were very few families that had AA, Al-Anon, and Alateen all in this, you know, all work in the program. So we got to share quite a bit. And it is true, this is only the second time I shared after Jack. Because if people say, who goes first, I say, me. I got here, I didn't get stupid, you know, I don't follow an alcoholic, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> somehow it worked out this way, so we'll see how it goes. I, I Just sitting here now, I figured out why I'm second. It's because the committee realized with the afternoon that I'm from New York, so I'll talk faster, then you can all get a nap. Right, Dennis? Right, Jack? <laughs> I promise, you will have your naps. <laughs> um, I was born in Brooklyn. Any surprise? <laughs> I was brought up on Long Island. I was brought up in a little town called Amityville. I am not the Amityville horror. <laughs> and see, Jack doesn't get up after me and tell you that I am. <laughs> he spent years rebutting me. Wait, Jack. <laughs> um, and uh, in that little town that many years ago, uh, I wanted to leave home. I was 17 years old. And you only had two ways that you could leave home. You didn't, like the kids nowadays, you didn't just get an apartment six blocks away and come home and do your laundry. You either moved to New York City and got a job, or you got married. Well, at 17, I wasn't really ready to move to New York City and get a job, so I got married. This is not a good motive for getting married. I had a little girl, and that marriage didn't last very long. And uh, after that marriage broke up, I sat down and I did some thinking. Now I think, in my opinion, that the Al-Anon's thinking is second in destruction to the alcoholic's drinking. They come very close sometimes to being even. But I sat down and did some thinking. I said, okay, I made a mistake. Now I'm going to correct it. Now I'm going to move to New York City. I'm going to get a job. I'll get a place to live. And then, of course, I'm going to meet this really great guy. He'll be a professional, we'll get married, and we'll move to the suburbs, probably Connecticut, because I came from Long Island, and we will live happily ever after in a house with a picket fence and a station wagon. And in those days, one of those ones with the wooden sides, and uh, he'll come home from work and read the paper while I make dinner, and we'll go to PTA meetings, and we'll help the children with their homework. Now I met Jack, so I'm gonna tell you what really happened. <laughs> I did move to New York City and I did get a job and I moved into this rooming house 
in Greenwich Village. And, uh, and it was one of those old brownstones that had been converted into rooms. So as you went up the stairs, the rooms got smaller and smaller. And we were up on the top floor. And it was the thing where when you were in your room, you always left the door open. Otherwise, it was very claustrophobic. It was one of those things where you woke up in the morning and you sat on the edge of your bed. You put the hot plate on. You opened up the closet door to see what you were going to wear. You never had to get up, you know. So uh, I just happened to be sitting in my room with the door open one night, and I noticed this cute guy moved down the other end of the hall. And I didn't meet him right away, but, you know, every time he opened up the door, what a mess. That guy needed somebody to take care of him. I couldn't believe it, you know. And then one night I was sitting there again, minding my own business, which is very unusual for me. And uh, he came walking down the hall, and he had a book of poetry underneath one arm and a quart of beer underneath the other arm. And he came to my room, he sat down, he read me poetry, and he drank his beer. Now that night he read me Dylan Thomas. I did not know that night that Dylan Thomas had died of alcoholism in New York City. I also did not know that Jack had come to New York City to take Dylan Thomas's place. <laughs> but, you know something, that wouldn't have bothered me if you mentioned it to me, because I had taken his resume. He was Irish Catholic, the oldest of five children from South Bend, Indiana. He had graduated from Notre Dame which is, <laughs> Jackie and Georgia here, they, they were in Los Angeles, and they, we knew them for eight years there, and then they moved back to Grand Island, Nebraska, and of course, <laughs> uh, George has always been this big Nebraska fan, so it's really a war during football season. They love to call each other and nudge each other. Unfortunately, the last couple of years, uh, George has done much of the nudging. But we're hoping for a turnaround this year. <laughs> I'm glad they don't play each other. Oh, my God. Uh, so, you know, we, uh, he had all these credentials. He was really, now, is that not somebody to marry and move to the suburbs with? It's perfect. So we got together, and uh, we were together about a year. And I, all of a sudden, I looked, and I said, something's wrong. So I sat down and did some thinking. You know, here we are together for a year, and it does not look like we're on our way to the suburbs at all. That's when I made that decision that, you know, Irish, a lot of kids, we probably need more children. That's what gets them to move to the suburbs. So we had uh, three more children, which made a total of four, and we were still not in the suburbs. But, you know, it's the strangest thing that happens. All these things that happen over the years... You don't really react to them. You store them. You know, it's sort of like those endorphins that Jack talks with the TLC or whatever. You really shut that woman up with that word. Uh, <laughs> that stuff that you store up here. Well, the Al-Anon just kind of stores all these odd incidents up here. And, uh, you know, we're just, you know, this is not working. We're not in the suburbs. We've got four children. I'm working. And, you know, but Jack was, Jack was always trying, which was really kind of confusing to me. You know, he always meant to come home for dinner, but he'd stop in for a beer. And, you know, those Don actors wouldn't let him come home. They'd keep asking him questions, and he just couldn't be impolite because he's a very nice guy. Jack is also unique in another way. He never had more than two beers. I know because he told me. I now think about it. They must have been very big glasses, you know. 
I'd look at him sometimes and I'd say, my God, I can drink more than two beers and walk upright, you know. And, uh, <laughs> but, I, you know, I just, I sat down and I did this thinking and I thought, this is not working. And then, by God, living with an alcoholic is so confusing. Do you know that just when I had made a decision to get out of the whole situation, he got a job. He got a job in New Rochelle teaching. Now, that is not Connecticut, but it sure is the suburbs. So we went to New Rochelle. I loved it when he was teaching. It was really nice. I finally didn't work. We had the children. Oh, I was a Girl Scout leader. I thought, you see, I found the answer. It's really working. And then came what he told you about, you know, not getting his credit so he couldn't get tenure. And I started thinking and putting in my file up here, I didn't know. If you don't know about the disease of alcoholism, you don't know about rebelliousness, you don't know about immaturity, you don't know all those characteristics. And I just, I had no idea that, you know, what was going on. And I just, I would just look at him and I'd think, there must be something wrong with this man. I couldn't figure out what it was, you know. But he lost that job in uh, New Rochelle. And I, you know, I, and it was so interesting because I, not knowing anything about alcoholism, I was brought up by a grandmother and a great-grandmother in Amityville. And uh, my, I, I don't know if this is correct or not, but it seemed to me there was just one bottle of whiskey in the house the entire time I was growing up. They literally used it for medicinal and New Year's Eve. You know, and I, so I knew nothing about the disease of alcoholism. So I didn't know what was happening to him or what was happening to me. I was getting more and more discontented. He was out of the house more than he was in the house. And so, you know, but then again, he lost the job teaching. Then he met up with his ex-movie star, and they were going to start a theater. <laughs> and uh, for one year, they worked on this theater. This is when I remember that, you know, the alcoholic often talks about that fine line that they cross. And I think an Al-Anon also sometimes crosses that line where I said, this is, there's something really wrong here. Because it was kind of that year I remember going out to pick up the paper in the morning and I bring the paper and my husband in from the front porch. And, uh, and it's so strange because then you immediately rush outside and look around. Who saw it? Did anybody see? Did anybody see him laying on the front porch? And then the really funny part of it is, probably everybody saw him laying on the front porch, but then when we got to the program, we became anonymous. God forbid anybody should know he's getting better, you know? No, they will figure that one out. <laughs> uh, but, and I, I remember him being out of the house and not coming home. And you know, and all those things, and I started thinking again. So when he came home after that theater didn't work, no surprise, when he came home and said, uh, I got this great job in Ohio, I have never been able to figure out how he got that great job in Ohio, but he came home and announced he got this great job in Ohio, and he was going to go, and he had a lot of plans. And I did a lot of Al-Anon things before I got to Al-Anon, like forwarding his mail. Uh, <laughs> that showed him, boy. <laughs> um, everything I ever did backfired. But uh, I used to leave him all over town, too. You know, he said to me one time, you've got to stop leaving me all over town. You know, I can't find my way home. But um, he said, you know, he came home and he, he announced what he was going to do, that he was going to go to Ohio and he was going to see if he liked it. If he liked it, then he would uh, send for the family during the holidays. This was the end of August. 
And I kept saying in an Al-Anon way, which I didn't have Al-Anon, uh-huh, uh-huh, very interesting, oh yeah, sounds good. Never intended to see the man again. Because my thinking was, I, he goes to Ohio, I stay where we are, and that's the end. Now, I didn't tell him that. I took him to the airport and said goodbye to him forever. You know, and then when I heard him pitch in AA and he said he got this job in Ohio and said goodbye to his wife forever at the airport, here was two people standing there saying goodbye to each other forever, you know. Neither one knew that the other one knew. <laughs> That's great communication. <laughs> and um, so he went off to Ohio. And you know what it's like when the alcoholic goes away? Oh, it's so wonderful, so peaceful, so quiet for two weeks. Then you begin to think, gee, you know, I really miss him. Maybe it wasn't so bad. You know, this is where the Al-Anon program comes in, because it gets the Al-Anon over the two weeks. But, of course, I didn't have Al-Anon, and I got this phone call, and he told me it was the best place in the country. The theater was great. The people were great. Oh, it was just terrific, and I was going to love it. And then those three words that he told you, he said to me, I need you. Well, you know, how could I resist that? So I, I told everybody I was moving way out west. I now call Ohio back east. And um, I packed up all the kids, and we went to Ohio by train at night. And John was going to be six the next day, and he had, had some dental work done in the morning, and they'd given him gas, and so he was sick all night on the train. Uh, Kathy was in the ninth grade, leaving all her friends, so she cried all night on the train. Christy was okay. Melinda was still young, and the train was an hour and a half late, and she cried for an hour and a half. And we had the dog with us, because they wouldn't take him in the baggage car. And I got off the train in Ohio, and guess who was not there to meet me? And I looked around, and I said, what happened to my thinking? What am I doing here? And we spent four years in Ohio, two years when he directed this theater. And all this time, something's happening to me. Because I'm, I'm just becoming, you know, did you ever yell at your children, and in your head you're saying, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be like this. But I, could, I seem to have no control. And I now know that it was a misdirected anger. I rarely yelled at Jack because he was rarely around, but I took it out on those kids, and I didn't like it, and I didn't like what was happening to me. And uh, when he lost the job in Ohio directing the theater, I thought, well, you know, maybe we'll get someplace. And then he got this job teaching, which I love him as a teacher. He kind of looks like a teacher with a beard, doesn't he? Uh, I kind of liked, you know, I always liked him as a teacher. And uh, he got a job teaching in the college. And it was, as he told you, a Methodist college that does not believe in drinking. Now, an alcoholic just has to hide a bottle. But did you ever try to hide a whole alcoholic in a little town? It was, and he was not a quiet alcoholic. He was a noisy little son of a gun. And he'd come home at 4 o'clock in the morning on the back of a motorcycle, and somebody would dump him off. He always said he loves the Al-Anon denial. Because alcoholic, alcoholism is a disease of denial, but the Illinois participates in that. Because he said he'd get dumped off this motorcycle, he'd crawl across the grass, crawl up on the front steps, and I'd open up the door and look down at him and say, have you been drinking again? <laughs> and he used to look up at me and say, God, I hope so. <laughs> and, um, so and, and as he told you, he became a hippie. Because this was the 60s when he was teaching. 
and uh, he had long hair. He used to wear sunglasses at all times, even in the movie. He had a Fu Manchu mustache. He wore a leather vest with fringe, and he had a peace symbol that one of the students had made for him. It was made out of ham and iron. It was about this big. Looked more like a weapon than a peace symbol. And uh, he was a favorite uh, professor of the pharmacy school. He used to test their product for them. You know, give him a handful of pills. I'll, I'll write there down my results, you know. And uh, I was always trying to he'd have meetings at the house with these kids, and I was always serving them potato chips and cookies because I figured I could change their minds, you know. I, you know. So, but when he decided to organize them and blow up the administration building, that was more than the administration could could stand. So when he lost his job, he came home. And he said, well, where should we go now? I took one look at the hippie and said, we better go to California. <laughs> and uh, we packed up this big old Chevrolet. The children all flew out to some friends of ours in Long Beach. And Jack and I packed up this great big old Chevy. We even had a cooler in the front seat between us. And me and the hippie started across the country. I did most of the driving because Jack had heard that in the middle America, they see these hippies, they stop them, put them in jail, and nobody ever hears from them again. So every time we get near any kind of population, he'd sit under the dashboard and I'd drive. Well, if you don't know about the disease of alcoholism, and your husband is sitting underneath the dashboard in the car, you begin to think crazy. And that's what I thought was wrong with him, that he was crazy. All those pills that those kids gave him, and you know, it was always everybody else's fault. You know, and uh, so we drove across, and, and actually, I was really kind of nervous about the whole thing. That's when I found out, you know, that we were really traveling, because I did most of the, the driving. And I'd look at him underneath there, and I'd think, ah, you know, if I hadn't had the kids already out here, I would have gone back east where I knew somebody. Because from underneath there, he doesn't know if I'm driving east or west, you know. <laughs> And uh, like any alcoholic, uh, he said, at night he used to practice yoga, so he'd sit under the dashboard all day and stand on his head half the night. And if you don't know about the disease of alcoholism, that's pretty scary, you know. And the funny part of it is, if any one of you were to call me up and say to me, and describe that trip across the country, I'd say, for God's sakes, get out of that car. Get another car. Take a plane. Take a train. But, you know, get out of the situation. It never occurred to me that I had a choice. The children were at this end, and it was my job to get there, and it was my job to get him there. And I did a lot of thinking driving across the country. My plan was, we get to Los Angeles, I get rid of him, and I take care of the kids, and everything will be okay. Does anybody know how hard it is to get rid of an alcoholic? <laughs> it's like gum on your hands, you know. You keep trying to throw it out, and you can't. They keep coming back. That's where they got that, you know. Keep coming back to the alcoholic. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> so we finally got back. We, we stopped off in San Francisco, and... Uh, Jack had a fight with a best friend of his he used to know back east. And I had a resentment against the city of San Francisco for years. Because my thing was, he acts bad, I get the car, and I drive off and leave him. 
And I went out to, uh, and I, I had learned how to drive in Ohio, which is like this part of Nebraska, flat ground. And in San Francisco, they drive up and down mountains all day long, you know, and then they got these trolleys in between. So I came out and I got scared, and I didn't know about the word. I didn't know those words, powerless, or any of those things. And I just got, I got angry at San Francisco because I couldn't leave him and I had to stay there and wait for him. We finally got down to Los Angeles, and it was going to be the last three years of Jack's drinking, but of course we didn't know that. And uh, I never stopped trying. You know, very often new Al-Anons will come in and they're very young. They've been with the alcoholic about two months, and they come in because legitimately the alcoholic's drinking bothers them. And I was like, two months? You want a few tricks to try? You know, I mean, how could you give up in two months, you know? There's a lot of things to try, and I never stopped trying from the day I met Jack to make him better. God bless Fed Ellis. He made him into the man I never thought I could find, you know? Alcoholics Anonymous is a miracle. But um, I just, you know, I just kept on, you know, trying things. And I'd get angry with him at night, and I'd sit on the bed. I used to keep all our bills in a shoebox very neatly. And uh, I still keep them in the shoebox, but now I pay them once in a while. I never had any money, so I, never, I don't know why I was keeping them so neatly. But I'd sit there at night with my oldest daughter, and I'd go, well, one for him, one for me, and we're getting rid of him, and he's gone. And she used to say that her biggest resentment when during the drinking was that at night I would say that, and then the next morning he'd come in with a smile, a poem, a rose, tell me everything was going to be different, and she said, Mom, you always believed him. And, you know, and that's the way it was. It just went like that all the time. I did try one last thing. <laughs> we lived in the Silver Lake area of Los Angeles, which is kind of out of the mainstream. So I figured if we moved closer to where I work, which was Hollywood, then I could keep Jack home. You know, I could chase him better and look for him. So, uh... <laughs> I, we moved up to Hollywood, and I found this house to rent. And when you opened up the front door, there was a barbecue on the patio, and I knew if we had that house with that barbecue, everything would be okay. And we moved into that house. I don't think we ever used that barbecue. I found out from Jack, when, <laughs> which is something I have to backtrack a little, when he was, that he did grow pot in the barbecue, which I didn't know about. <laughs> But I did find out an answer. I found out a lot of things when I heard him pitch an Alcoholics Anonymous. The reason he was sitting underneath the dashboard on that trip across the country was because in the trunk of the car he had a whole bunch of grass that I was driving across state lines, you know. He figured it was better for me to drive than him. And this, this house in Hollywood had a flat roof. And, uh, you know, I've heard about ambulance chasers. But did you ever hear about a helicopter chasers? We'd be sitting there, and all of a sudden, we'd hear a helicopter, which is not unusual in Hollywood, <coughs> and out he'd run, and he's all over the place. And I found out later when I heard him pitch, he was growing pot up on that flat roof. And he, I guess he figured if, you know, if they came and knocked on the door, better I should answer it than him. And uh, we, you know, it was, I just didn't know what was happening, you know, and I was doing terrible things to the children. I was... You know, my oldest, my middle daughter, Christy, she always says, you know, she'd call me up every day at work and say, what's for dinner? And I'd tell her what to take out of the freezer. To this day, she says, I never taught her how to cook, I just taught her how to defrost. 
And I used to pack up these kids in the middle of the night and go out to look to see where Jack was drinking. I never went in. I never wanted him. I just wanted to know where he was, you know. And uh, so I, you know, then I interrupted their sleep. And, I, and I, these things never occurred to me that I had a choice. I never knew I had a choice till I got to Al-Anon. Christie said that in Alateen they learn that the Alateen always think there is a choice and they know it. The Al-Anon has the choice, but they don't know it. And that's a hard, hard thing. And Christie also says something else that, that was, when I heard her say it in Alateen, it really hit me. She said, in an alcoholic home, we whisper, I love you, and scream, I hate you. And that's the way it was, you know. And John was, 12, was going to be 12 years old, and I was trying to make him take Jack's place. I, if the girls broke, <coughs> broke something, he, I would give it to him and try to tell him to fix it. And, of course, it was like Jack described about his own life. He felt inadequate because I, he can't take his father's place. And this is, you know, this whole family was so destroyed. And I see it today. I, I see the effects of alcoholism in these children today. But they've grown up, they're adults, and they had Alateen, and they know how to correct those things. But it's there. There's just no way to take it away, just like it affected me. I have certain things that I work on every single day. They will never go away, but I will work on them. Because the effects of the disease of alcoholism on the family is forever. You cannot take it away. Don't try. Instead, fix it. Change it. And, uh, and finally, you know, our oldest daughter got out of the house as soon as she could. And she came back one weekend and she said, Mom, look at this house. Look at these kids. How can you live like this? And I looked around, and you know, I discovered something about me, which I'm sure is true of a lot of Alanons, is that um, <coughs> they, um, excuse me, they, uh, if you don't, if I don't see it and you don't mention it, then I can deny it. But if you see it and you tell me about it, then I have to accept it, I have to look at it, and I have to be honest about it. So when she said to me, look at this house and look at these children, I looked at it. I looked at John. We had moved John out of his room because the roof was leaking, and I had picked up the rug and thrown it out the window. Uh, the plumbing wasn't working correctly. The electric was dangerous. There were spots on the rug all over the place. Uh, it was, the house was a mess, but we were also three months behind in the rent. And when you're three months behind in the rent, you do not call the landlord to fix the roof. You have a very low profile. You hope they forget they own the house. And, um, I think that house we rented from an Al-Anon, because she really, or an alcoholic, because she never really bothered us too much about it. But, uh, and then I looked at the children. I looked at John. John was going to be 12 years old. He used to come home from school and go in his room and lock the door and go in his closet and lock the closet and sit on the shelf of his closet because he was so scared to live in that house. And Christy had taken over the house and taken over my responsibilities. And then I looked at Melinda. Melinda was going to be seven. And I figured, well, she's too young. She doesn't know anything. And then I heard a pitch in preteen, and Melinda knew everything that was going on in that house. And when I looked at that, I said to Kathy, you're right. We can't live like this anymore. And that's when we asked Jack to leave. Now, by this time, Jack was a hippie, full-fledged. He was 40, trying to look 20. 
He had the long stringing hair because he wasn't well. Still the dark glasses. He had ruffled shirts. He used to wear two pair of uh, brocades that uh, they were bell bottom. <laughs> One was red and black brocade, the other was gold brocade. He used to alternate between those two pairs. He came up to my office once and when he left, all the girls said, we didn't know you were married to a hippie. I said, I didn't know it either. <laughs> and uh, we kicked him out of the house and he got arrested that night. He had a shoulder bag he used to carry all the time. And uh, I went down to jail to bail him out. Even though I had kicked him out, somebody called me and told me he was in jail. And because I hadn't been to Al-Anon yet, so I didn't know any better. When I got down to the jail, the jailer looked at me and knew what was back there in the brocades and the bags and all that stuff. And he said, I don't think your husband's in this jail. I said, yeah, I know he is because somebody told me. And he really gave me an argument about whether Jack was in the jail. And finally I said, I know he's here, his purse is laying right over there. <laughs> but everything I'm going to tell you from now on, I don't know why. I stopped asking why a little over 25 years ago. I don't care. The word why is out of my vocabulary and the word try is out of my vocabulary. I don't try to do anything. I either do it or I don't do it. And I don't ask why. But uh, I went down and they wouldn't let me bail him out. And I went home. And the next morning when he came home, I stood in front of him calmly and quietly and I said, you got to leave. We can't live like this anymore. And it was right after Kathy had been there for the weekend. And I said, this is not going to work. And I want you and I will come home and make sure you're gone. And I went to work and I looked up alcoholism in the phone book. I don't know why I did that. I never thought about alcoholism until that morning. And I talked to a woman and she, I told her about Jack and I told her about me and she said, you know, you're not married to a man who's crazy or the SOB that you think he is. You're married probably to a man who has a disease, the disease of alcoholism, for which there is help. And she gave me a number for him to call. And um, I said, okay, great. And she told me to go home, ask him if he needed help, dial that number. And I said, great. And I started to hang up and she's going, she's yelling on the phone, wait, wait, wait. And I said, okay, what? And she said, you know, you haven't always done everything right over the years, but there is a place for you to go. You didn't know any better, but there is a place to go to learn how to live with an alcoholic. And that's Al-Anon. And she gave me the number for Al-Anon and made me promise that I would go to a meeting. And I said, okay. And I went home and I, woke up Jack. <laughs> I also didn't know about passing out. And also, you know, it's a, you know, by this time, so many things had happened that I was in such a state of confusion about him. You know, hallucinations. I mean, I, you know, Jack would call me up and I'd say to him, where are you? You're supposed to be home for dinner. And he'd say, I'm at the beach. And I'd say, how'd you get there? He'd say, I don't know. I have never gone any place that I didn't know how I got there. And then, you know, we'd all be sitting in a room, and the phone would not ring, and he would answer it and have a conversation. And the kids and I would look at each other, you know. <coughs> I mean, what is this, you know? So, you know, with all this stuff going on, I was grateful to that woman for telling me that there might be a reason for it other than crazy. And I went home, and I asked Jack if he wanted help, and he said yes. 
And we dialed that number and Jack talked to that man and I took him up to that 12-step house in Oxnard. And that was on Monday. And on Wednesday I got a call from him and he said, do you know all the things that I always told you about Alcoholics Anonymous? And he was not fond of it because his father was an alcoholic. He went to Alcoholics Anonymous, but we found out later my father-in-law really never got a lot of time. He just got very cranky trying to do it on his own. And that was our example. And also Jack was not fond of his father, so he didn't want to do anything his father did. So uh, he said, well, you remember all those things I told you about Alcoholics Anonymous? I said, yes. And he said, forget them. I am an alcoholic and I'm in the right place. There was something in his voice, something I'd never heard before. And uh, so I, you know, he stayed there for a week and we went and picked him up. But before, we picked him up on Sunday, but I went to my first Avalon meeting that Friday night because I had promised that woman. Now I never carried through on things. I never, this is where I tell you, I don't ask why. I never went any place by myself. I was always going to do it. But when the time would come, I wouldn't. For some reason, I went to that meeting on Friday night. I went all dressed up. I had a pad and a pencil. I thought it was a one-night seminar where they would tell me about the care and feeding of a newly sober alcoholic. <laughs> they weren't even terribly interested in the alcoholic. There was one woman who came up to me and she said, who's the problem drinker you're coming to Al-Anon for? And I said, it's my husband. It's the first time I ever said that. From that day to this, I've never been ashamed of loving an alcoholic. And during that, during that meeting, someone raised their hand and said something about an alcoholic. And she raised her hand and said, you know, you can all do a lot worse than love an alcoholic. I love that woman. That woman became my sponsor. She was my sponsor for 25 years until last April when she died. I'm in a lot of trouble with that. Jack went through that a few years before when his sponsor died. It takes a while, but because that woman is the woman who changed my life. And uh, we, right after that meeting, uh, I went up to her and I said something to her and she said, do you have any children at home? And I said, yes, I have three children still at home. And she said, well, they go to Alateen. I said, okay, because I was willing. I walked in that meeting, I knew I was in the right place. And uh, I said, where is it, what is it? And she said, well, this coming Tuesday, there's a meeting. And she told me where it was. So then we went up and got Jack that Sunday. And Christy always says that that was the first time when she saw her father that day that she knew his eyes were blue. Because that's the first time she had seen his eyes without all that red. Jack often says when he's talking about the children and the grandchildren that the grandchildren never saw him drink. They think an alcoholic is someone who goes to meetings. His children know what an alcoholic is. And uh, we went up and we picked up Jack, and you know, and it was a whole new thing that was starting for us. And this woman said, they go to Alateen. And I said, okay. And I went home and I said to Jack, Tuesday night is a meeting and we have to bring the children. He said, okay. This woman became her and she in our house. And uh, I got, uh, we, we all went that next Tuesday and I called her up the next day and I said, well, the girls loved it. They're going to go. But John doesn't like it, so he won't go. She says, oh, no. He lives in your house. He goes. She said, Alateen is the medicine that makes him well. Just like Al-Anon and preteen is the medicine that makes you and the girls well. John goes. So I went out to Jack and I said, she said he has to go. So he said, okay. So the next Tuesday I got home 
and John had a little league game, and uh, he would he get home late, and he was filthy. I never saw a child so filthy in my life. I found out later when I heard him pitch in Alateen that he had literally sprayed himself with a hose and rolled in the dirt. So when he got home, I called her up and I said, you know, John is just filthy. We'll bring him next week. We'll never get him cleaned up in time. She said, clean him up and bring him. So I went out to Jack and I said, she said he has to go. <laughs> Jack said, okay. So the next week I got home on Tuesday and John's in bed with his pajamas. No little league game. And he's sick. So I called her up and I said, uh, John's sick. I'll bring him next week. And then she said, uh, does he have a fever? And I said, no. She said, then he's better off in the meeting than at home. Dress him. So I said, okay. Went out to Jack and said, Jack, she says he has to go. Would you ever try to take a 12-year-old boy someplace he doesn't want to go? But you know, whatever John was supposed to hear, he heard. He's 38 years old now, and he still goes to Al-Anon. When he was 24, half of his life had been spent in the program of Alateen and Al-Anon. And uh, whatever he heard, he was supposed to hear. But you know something? If that boy had never gone back, you know what that woman did? She taught Jack and I how to be a team with our children. She taught Jack and I how to be consistent about something. If she had ever sat me down and said to me, I'm going to teach you consistency and I'm going to teach you teamwork, I would have looked at her and said, forget it. Not with that man. <laughs> and she did that. And that's the way she taught me everything. That woman used to be able to read my mind. You know, I, she said to me one day, what do you want from Jack? And I said, what do you mean? She said, well, what do you want? And I said, well, I want him for a husband and a lover. She said, well, Jean, you're going to have to give up those other jobs you have. I said, what? She said, well, his mother, his accountant, his confidant, his nurse, and on and on and on. And I said, oh, but you know something? That's kind of scary because that's where the control is. A wife and a lover don't have much control. But all those other ones, they have some control. Like I ever really had control, but I thought I did. And so, you know, she started to build the relationship of husband and wife between Jack and I. And she taught me how to be a mother. I always wanted to be a mother. All my life, when I was a little girl, we used to play dolls. And I had turned into this woman that screamed and yelled, you know, and my mother had screamed and yelled, and I had always said, I'll never be like her and I was worse than her. And, you know, she taught me how to stop. I said to her, how do I stop yelling at the children? And she said, Jean, just stop. And I, and I said, oh. <laughs> I always wanted a big psychological answer from her. Because she was a very bright woman. One time I called and complained to her. I said, those two girls are fighting and they're making me wheeze. I'm so upset. And she said, well, I'll tell you what to do the next time they do it. You just put them out of the house, and you say to them, do it for the neighbors, but not in my house. I thought, wait a minute, this is not intelligent. But the next time they were bickering with each other, I took them by the shoulder, I put them out the front door, and I said, not in this house, do it for the neighbors. I don't want to hear it. They came in, they said to their brother, she kicked us out. <laughs> but you know, they never did it again. It was a whole thing that, you know, this program is full of such simple solutions that we'll only listen. I had things, you know, with, with Jack where 
I would, you know, go to her with a problem with him. We have one special, I can't even remember what the problem was now, but I went to Jack and she and I talked about what I could say. And I went back and I said, he's not responding to that at all. And we tried something else and he didn't respond to that at all. Third time I tried and Jack looked at me and he said, well, that's intelligent. Why did you say that in the first place? So then I went to her and I said, ha ha. <laughs> she said, now we know. <laughs> And, you know, she, she also taught me, I think she got me through the whole first year of the program by saying to me, Gene, during the first year, he just stays sober. He doesn't do laundry. He doesn't pay bills. He doesn't do anything. He just stays sober. We'll get him after that cake. <laughs> you know, I, we never did get him, but it sure kept me going for a year. And, uh, you know, and then our children, you know, told you what the children were like, and John, John had a lot of trouble in school, a lot of trouble uh, with his grades and so on. He finally got out of high school, and he went to one year of junior college, and he failed, and he, uh, then he, he decided to work for a year, and then he went back to junior college, and he graduated, and he went to Jack, and we were eight years on the program then, he went to Jack, and he said to Jack, you know, if I could, I would graduate from Notre Dame as you did because you did. And that was sort of in a way of amends because they had built a relationship in those eight years that they had never had. And, uh, you know, miracle of this program, anything is possible. Jack told you he was in the seminary and one of his friends there, his best friend, had stayed in the seminary and he was a priest and he was at Notre Dame and he was second in charge. So Jack called him up after 33 years and said, hi, his name was Jack, too. He said, hi, Jack. And uh, he told him what the problem was. And this other Jack said, well, what have you been doing? And Jack said, well, I guess the most significant thing in my life is I'm sober and Alcoholics Anonymous for eight years. And the other Jack said, great, I've got 10. And they, you know, and he wrote a letter for John. And it was a rigorously honest letter. He said, this boy may not have the grades that we would want for a junior transfer to this university, but I believe he has found himself. And John went to the University of Notre Dame as a junior. And two years later, in 1982, Jack and I went to South Bend, Indiana, and we watched that boy graduate. That boy should have been in junior high. That boy had no chance when we came to this program, no chance for anything. I sort of looked around and all the other people thought they should be there because they paid the money. Jack and I knew it was a miracle. And today that boy works on a newspaper. He's married to an Al-Anon and Jack says they have two little Al-Anons. And he's a, he's a joy as a man. He's such a nice man. He really is. And Christy, Christy who found out in Alateen that she could do God's work but not God's job. And they told her to give the house and the children back to me and concentrate on herself, and she did. And she was very bright. She got out of high school at 16, and she had all kinds of grants and scholarships. She went up to Santa Cruz for one year, and then she transferred to UCLA pre-law, and she went to Washington, D.C. to law school. She graduated from law school in three years. She graduated from law school. She was on law review. She got married and had a baby. <laughs> That's an Al-Anon. And she came back to Los Angeles and she took the bar and she passed the bar. Now in Los Angeles, 
when you pass the bar, after all those years of study and all that money spent, what you do is you go down to the Shrine Auditorium, and there's about six or seven hundred people that pass the bar at one time, and you all raise your hand and get sworn in as an attorney. And it's sort of anticlimactic after all those years just to be standing there in that crowd. But you know something? If you belong to Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon and Alateen, that's not the way it goes. Don Gates, who was a judge in Los Angeles, he called Jack and he said, you know, Jack, if Christy would like me to, I would be honored to swear her in my chambers. He was the first one who wrote a letter for her because he'd known her since she was a preteen. Jack and I and Christy went down to his chambers and he swore her in. And, the, you know, he took us through the court and it was done with such dignity. And that's a gift from this program. You know, and then Melinda, who had had so much trouble, she's just, she, so, she had more trouble in sobriety than she had when Jack was drinking. Um, she had a hard time. She, she was really funny about the program. She went to, Al, to Alateen and uh, <laughs> one time she was really irritated with me. And Jack went down and said, are you having a problem with your mother? She said, yes. He said, I'll give you a secret from Alcoholics Anonymous. And she said, I already know the secret. So he said, what is it? She said, pray for the son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> but that sort of, she just was alienated from us. She wrote us a letter at one point because she was going to therapy where she told us we, never, we probably never should have been parents. And I won't tell you that it didn't hurt when she did that. And I encourage anybody who's writing one of those letters not to mail them. I mean, it hurt us a lot, but it didn't, didn't stop our life because we have this program. She has a right to her feelings, and I can't change them. Today, today she's done a total, total turnaround. She's an active member of the family. She's engaged to the nicest man, and they're going to get married. And so again, she got the roots from this program, and she's going to be okay. Our oldest daughter, who was so instrumental in showing me that there was a problem, she never really got the problem because she was in Phoenix and she didn't see that day-to-day -day change in us. And we tried to push her until we found out it's a program of attraction, not promotion. And, uh, and so she, you know, she finally just figured out that her mother and father got smart all of a sudden because we didn't give her advice anymore. We just gave her program. And today we have a great relationship with all four of our children. None of them are probably doing what we would want them to do or how, but I found out unconditional love in this program. I knew how to love before I got here, but I didn't know about unconditional love. I don't have to approve of what you do, but I can love you anyway, and that's great. And you know, just one other thing I'd like to share is, I got to my amends step, and I, got, I had a lot of problems with the amends step because I made amends to my family to the best of my ability. I made amends to Jack, mostly by allowing Jack to grow up, not be one of my children. I made amends at work by working. Um, I made amends all, you know, wherever I could, but I got to my children. And you know something, you cannot make amends to your children, it's impossible. They say it's a perfect program, but it's not. How do you make amends to your children? How do you make up for the open school nights you never went to? because you were chasing an alcoholic around. How do you make up for the times you didn't listen to them because you didn't want to hear what they had to say? Because then you'd have to do something. 
how do you make, you can't make up for these things. But you know, this program had given me so much that I, I didn't tell anybody about that. I just, just had it in my heart and I did a lot of praying about it. And um, you know, I, this program is such a miracle. I was about, oh, we were on the program. Every once in a while I'd say to my sponsor, don't you think I should get involved in Alateen because I, you know, they've done so much for my kid. And she used to always say to me, when you grow up, you can help them. And uh, so then uh, I went to an AA meeting with Jack one Sunday morning. I've never had been there before, and I've never been back again. This woman turned around, and she said, are you an Al-Anon? She was really angry. And I said, yeah, I'm an Al-Anon. And she said, uh, oh, I'm an alcoholic, and I want to start a preteen meeting for my daughter and your central office says, I can't do it without an Al-Anon. And I said, okay, <laughs> I'll do it. I say yes to everything. Well, going home in the car, she had already gotten the park at 12 noon on Saturday. And I thought, I don't want to do this. This is, this is, you know, I don't want to do it. But I had said yes. So we decided, and I got another friend of mine, Rebecca, who is an Alateen sponsor, to go with me that first week. And we sat there and just two little girls showed up for the first meeting, little girl whose mother wanted it started, another little girl with braids, who came in with her hands on her hips and said, uh, if this is anything like Girl Scouts, I'm not staying. I will never sing Foo Foo the Rabbit again. And Rebecca explained to her about it, and uh, that little girl, she stayed in that preteen meeting, and I had a call from her a few years later when she was in Alateen, and she said, Jean, I've done it again. I was just on a bus going to camp, and, uh, you know, I've gotten everybody mad at me. And I said, well, hell, what about the 10th step? She said, you're right, goodbye, and I've never heard from her again. <laughs> but that preteen meeting, I did that, and Jackie did it with me. We had four sponsors, and, and it was great, because we would just kind of make eye contact about who was the most tolerant that day, you know? Who didn't have a headache? And we had a wonderful time with that. But about two years into that program, all of a sudden it dawned on me, you know, the way God sends messages to us, that, you know, I was listening to those children. I was showing up every week for them. I was telling them to put their glasses on if they needed to read. I was telling them to wear a sweater when it was cold. And I was making amends to my children. This is a perfect program. There is nothing in your life that cannot be helped with these 12 steps. And I think that Jackie will admit, I know my son, who is a preteen and an Alateen sponsor, and Debbie's wife did it too, were better parents for doing those meetings. I take care of my grandchildren now, and I know from being a preteen sponsor that being, you know, keeping their confidence is the most important thing. And I told them, I said, you know, unless it's life-threatening, I will not tell your mother and father what you share with me. It's okay. And uh, my little grandson got in the car one day, and I said, well, Stephen, what kind of a day did you have in school? And he looked at me with his darling angel face. He said, oh, Grandma, I had a hell of a day today. <laughs> <laughs> and they feel free to talk about the things that they're feeling, because they know that they have it. And I learned that in preteen. I learned how to be a mother. I learned how to be a grandmother in this program. I learned how to be a wife, you know? And I was thinking just recently, I woke up on the morning of June the 6th, 1971, and I said to myself, this is the worst day of my life. 
And I thought back about everything that had happened. And you know something I have come to find out? That June the 6th, 1971, was the best day of my life. Because I found you, and you have changed my life forever. Thank you.